The, the most important thing a leader has is his nerve, is her nerve. The most important thing a leader has is, is his willingness to, to suffer for the vision, her willingness to be committed no matter what. And when a leader loses his nerve or her nerve, that's the ball game. Uh, I, I wanna talk about leadership this morning and, and I'm gonna, I wanna call people to hold on. If you're a leader, I wanna tell you, don't give up. You gotta hold on real tight. We need it, the hour is now. Here's the problem, and don't say I didn't warn you. It's gonna hurt. It's gonna leave a mark. You're gonna be a leader with a limp. Nevertheless, this is the task that God is calling us, some of, to, some of us to this morning. Let those who have the ears to hear, let them hear in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, good morning again. Uh, as Dr. Tennant said, my name is Andrew Forrest. I'm uh, the senior pastor at Asbury Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I've only been there two months, eight Sundays. Uh, the previous 12 years, I just moved at the end of the summer. I crossed the Red River into uh, Oklahoma. I was a pastor in Texas for the previous 12 years. And uh, I'm pleased to be here with you this morning. And I'd like to say to those here and those uh, watching online, we're really pleased that you're here. And just because you never know you never know who God brings in any particular moment. There's a welcome I always like to give whenever I preach on a Sunday. I like to say this. Whatever your week has been like or your life's been like, whatever you look like, whether you believe what we believe, or even if you vehemently disagree, in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, you're welcome in this place this morning. So with that in mind, therefore, let's have a prayer as I begin. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hidden. So cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. To that end, Lord, I pray that now you'd take my words and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Give us insight. Show us how this applies to we ourselves. And then, God, take our hearts and fill them with the holy fire to love you and love your world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. This is the fundamental problem with leadership, is that you have to go first, by definition. You're not a leader unless you go first. And when you go first, you are very vulnerable. It's true if you're the point man in a fire patrol in the jungles of Vietnam, you're the first one to hit the tripwire or, or the mine. And it's true when you're a pastor leading in a church. It's true when you have a vision, an entrepreneurial vision for business. When you go first, you are exposed. It's not great. Everybody thinks being a leader is great. It's really not that great because you're the one who has to take all the flack that's coming at you. It's funny that we like to uh, speak in the current cultural moment that everybody is a leader. Everybody's a leader. It's just not true. It's not true. It also makes no sense. You can't have everybody being a leader. It's like if the entire dorm floor is just the RA. It's never going to work. So I, I think God calls certain people to be leaders. It's the body, and some of us are elbows, and some of us are knuckles, and, and some of us are eyebrows, and we all fit together. And, and here's what I know about leadership. If you are a leader, you can't help it. You can't help it. I'm reminded of what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah doesn't like the job that he has been given by God. It's a difficult job. Jeremiah says, if I say, I will keep his word I won't speak. He says, it's like a fire within me. I cannot hold it in. If you're a leader, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know that God made you a certain way and you gotta go first even when you don't want to. 
And if you've ever actually led in real life, you know most of the time you don't actually want to. It sounds good. I'm telling you, it is its own particular burden. But here, here's my, here, here is uh, my, my uh, insight, into, insight into my personality, and some of you will identify. So it's the first day of classes. Uh, it's early in the morning. And let's say it's a little chilly out. It's the spring semester. And it's the first class of the day. And you show up and there's a scrum of students waiting around outside the door. Now what is the obvious deduction? The obvious deduction is that facilities didn't lock the door, did not unlock the door. Somebody has already called and you're just waiting for facilities to come and unlock the door so you can get into the class. I, I know that. I know that. So I show up and there's a scrum of students waiting there. I know that if I walk to the front of that crowd, I will look like the biggest idiot in the world. Who does this joker think he is? I know that if I walk up to the front and try the doorknob, nine times out of 10, 999 times out of 1,000, the door is locked. I know it. But can I tell you something about me? I gotta try the doorknob. <laughs> I gotta do it myself. I can't help it. I can't help it. And most of the time you look like a fool, but you know you, you kinda had to be honest to who God made you to be. But there's that one time. There's that one time. There is nothing sweeter than when you try that door and you realize that nobody else did it and they needed a leader to go first. You are a leader if that's you and you can't stop. The problem the problem is that once you actually start leading, it starts to hurt because you're the one going first. And it's not any fun. I've experienced this myself even, even recently. I was at a church for 12 years. I just moved to a new church. Yeah, following a, a, a beloved senior pastor who was there for 29 years. Now, I know I'm not a complete idiot. I know what happens to the guy who follows the guy. <laughs> What's going to happen to the guy who follows Nick Saban? I know how it works. You get chewed up and spit out. I know it. But I also know that God made me to lead. So I actually have to lead. I have to step into it. But it makes me afraid. I don't like doing it. I'd rather not. I'd rather sit in the safety in the back and let somebody else do it. But God made me a certain way and I have to be faithful to that. And so do some of you. And the moment for leadership to go first is acute where we currently are. So you may have seen these stats. You all need to read this report. It came out three weeks ago by the Pew Research Fund. A report on the declining future of Christianity in America. So here's some stats from it. Here's the first one. It shows, and you can see this on the screen, it shows that in 1972, over 90%, uh, West, do we have that slide? Oh, it's up. Oh, there you go. It shows that in 1972, over 90% of Americans, when asked, said, yes, I'm a Christian. I identify as a Christian. Now, we're not commenting on whether they were very faithful or went to church or tithed or anything like that. It's just that that was true about them. And then in 2020, so just 50 years later, the number has fallen to about 64%, one-third. This is a drastic change. And, it, and the demographers of the Pew Foundation say the, the future is bleak. Now, at the same time that the number of people who claim to be Christians is declining, guess what number is rising? Look at the next slide here. The number of people who claim to have no religion whatsoever, the so-called nuns. Now, in 1972, this category almost didn't exist. 
And now almost a third of Americans, and of course it's much, much higher among young people, almost a third of Americans no longer claim any sort of religion at all. So this is what it seems like to me. It's obvious to me that what we are doing is not working in the current cultural moment. It's not 1965 anymore. We can't go back and do the same thing. Now, how many of you serve a little church where they say, Pastor, we have a great idea. We gotta do a revival. We gotta have a revival this fall. Yeah, and here's what's gonna happen when you do the revival. The people who come to your church on Sunday are gonna come to your church on Tuesday. And nobody knew was gonna come. Why? Not that there's anything wrong with the revival, it's because we're in a different cultural moment and we have to be wise. Wise as serpents and gentle as doves to discern the time. So here's where we are now, and this is what I wanna challenge you. We're at a moment in which we need some leaders to go first because our evangelistic strategies have not been working. Now, I don't mean in any individual context. I don't mean at your particular church of ministry or, or in your particular uh, mission field. I'm talking about broadly speaking, in the Western world, our strategies are not working. Those of you who are not in the Western world have different cultural problems that you are encountering. But really, anywhere the internet is these days is, is gonna create the same problems we must discern how to solve. So the, the billionaire contrarian investor Peter Thiel, very interesting guy, he gave a series of lectures at Stanford Business School about 10 years ago, and then he published them together in a book, and the book is called Zero to One, Zero to One. And it's, uh, it's, um, it's, it's about uh, creating value in the business world. The idea is, is that just iterating doesn't create value. Just going one plus N doesn't create value. So I have a cell phone, I'm gonna make a, a smaller cell phone. I have a plane, I'm gonna make a faster plane. Peter Thiel says, no, no. The value in entrepreneurship lies when a new thing is created, when you go zero to one. You understand the binary language? Zero to one, not one plus N. It's not making a smaller phone, it's when Alexander Graham Bell made the first telephone. It's not making a faster jumbo jet, it's when Orville and Wilbur first had those beautiful 19 seconds. And you know what I think? I think we're at a zero to one moment in the Western church. And what I mean is, it's time for us to do a new thing, to reach the people in our day, in our time. And here's what I know. This will not happen without leaders going first. I, I, I think it's fair to say that Genesis chapters 12 through 50 are concerned really with one thing. Now, now y'all know, Genesis 1 through 11 is this beautiful prologue, not just to the book of Genesis, but to the entire Bible. It begins with the goodness of creation, and, and, and God saw that it was all tov ma'od. It was very good, Genesis 1:31. And then there's human rebellion coupled with cosmic rebellion, and, and the patterns work their way out, culminating in the story, the dark story of the Tower of Babel. And then in Genesis 12, God does something absolutely, and I mean no respect, Lord. God does something, no disrespect, Lord. God does something absolutely insane. He picks one man and his family. That's why I like to say that Genesis 12 through 50 are concerned with the idea of family. The foundation and the forming of the family and the patriarchs and the matriarchs that will be the ones fit to carry on the covenant. And it's touch and go. This way and this way and three steps forward and four steps back. 
And what's interesting is that you see the same pattern played out. Remember what the Lord says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So there's this image that they will be descendants of the woman, from the seed of the woman, and then descendants of the snake, so to speak. Now, I don't think we're supposed to think they're little baby snakes scurrying around. And and I hate baby snakes anyway, even though my five-year-old says, they're cute. No, they're not. I I don't think they mean it literally. I think think it's going to be. There'll be some people who are going to behave as if they're like snakes, and other people that are going to behave as if they're the children of the covenant. What happens, though, when you have a child who should be part of the covenant who behaves like a snake? Remember his name? Yaakov, right? The heel grabber. It's an idiom. You want to trip somebody up, how do you do it? Grab their heel. Stick out your leg. Jacob's very name shows the great challenge of his life. He, he is constantly a snake. He is constantly deceitful and, and untrustworthy all the way through his life. What's interesting to me is the promises that God has made both to his grandfather and to him are so clear. Genesis chapter 12, God has said to Abraham, through you all the nations of the world shall be blessed. I will bless you to be a blessing. And then we have in Genesis 28, the beautiful story of Jacob sleeping when he thinks his life is all about to go into exile. He sleeps with the pillow for a stone and then he sees the ladder and the angels ascending and descending and he says, the Lord is in this place and God says to him, I am with you. I'm committed to you. But Jacob has a hard time really trusting in God's promises. It it strikes me that the central act of leadership is holding on to the vision that God has given you to not letting it go, to holding it really tight. And if we're going to move zero to one, and we're going to move out and and take new ground for the Lord, it's going to require leaders who are bold and committed to holding on to their vision. Now, in some sense, it shouldn't surprise us that God is asking us to do a new thing, because that's what God has been doing since the very beginning. Let light be, and light was. It had never been before. And then God called it out. God had never had a covenant people until he has the people of Israel. It had never been the case that the word had put on flesh and walked among us until Bethlehem, and there it was. Nobody had ever walked on water. And then Jesus calls Peter, and it happens. You've always got to be part of Abraham's bloodline to be part of the Messiah's family. And then in Acts end, the spirit falls on Cornelius' household, and a new thing happens. I think, I think God is desperate to find men and women who are ready to push out and to trust him and to hold tight to a vision from him, for him to do a new thing. And it's been happening all throughout Christian history. Rome is crumbling, the Roman Imperium is corrupt, and St. Benedict of Nursia withdraws to a little dark valley in 500 A.D., And he founds the monastic movement that will shape Western Europe and preserve the gospel for a thousand years. At just the right time, the Lord raises up the Wesley brothers and George Whitfield to do a new thing, to take the gospel outside of the neat boundaries of the Church of England. 
We're at a zero to one moment now. And we need leaders who are willing to hold on and go the direction that God has asked them to go. But it hurts. It's not any fun. So here we are, Genesis chapter 32. For all of his snake-like qualities, I absolutely love Jacob. I just love him. Because he will not let go. The drama of the moment is intense. He's about to meet his brother, and he's worried that his brother's going to kill him. So he arose, verse 22, and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Sort of the opposite of leadership. He sends them first, and he stays back. Then that verse there, and Jacob was left alone. If you have ever been a leader, you know exactly that feeling. You can have the most beautiful people around you who pray for you and support you, and I hope you do. And I know that I do. You can have a strong marriage and children who love you. But if you are actually a leader, there is always a moment in which you feel alone. Always. Always. Because only you can do what you can do. Only God has placed that vision to you, not for anybody else. There's that great scene at the end of A Few Good Men where Tom Cruise knows the only way to get Colonel Jessup to admit that he ordered the code red is to provoke him in a way that'll place Tom Cruise in legal jeopardy, in contempt of the court. And he asks his colleague, who had worked with Tom Cruise's late father, he asks his colleague, would my father have done this? And the colleague says, no, he wouldn't. But you're not your father. And I love that line. It's about your time and the call that God has placed on you. It's not about anybody else. You're left alone, totally alone. And a man wrestled, Genesis 32, 24, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting in in that God has been trying to bless Jacob and bless through Jacob since the very beginning. But Jacob has some qualities that God wants to use, but Jacob isn't using them for his own purposes and not for God's. This is always the way leadership works. It's, a, it's, a, it's an ambivalent, it's an ambivalent gift. I mean, it's not one of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are always good. It's always good to have love, joy, peace, patience, etc. But leadership is a particular gift, just like um, artistic creativity or something. Just like any of the gifts that God gives us. And they can be used for God's glory or they can be used against God's glory. The gift is the same, it's neutral. You gotta give it over to God. And and the problem with Jacob is not that he doesn't have the tenacity that he has, it's that he's been using it in the wrong way all those previous decades and all the deception that he has. But that's not to say that his tenacity is not good. It's a very ambiguous story, but. I never have thought there's any sense in which it's bad that Jacob wrestles all night long. There's something beautiful about Jacob holding on. When the man saw, verse 25, that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. He's punched so hard in the groin that his hip goes out. He's hit really hard in the exact part of his body that has caused the most pain. 
The 12 sons are murderous, rapacious young men. They commit great acts of violence we're about to see. And Jacob has brought that about with Leah and then Rachel and then the two maids. And he's hit so hard by this mysterious wrestler that his hip is put out of joint. But nevertheless, he doesn't let go. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken, the wrestler says. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. In the old King James, it says, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. It's beautiful. There's something about Jacob that I just love. And I think what it is, it's his refusal to let go. That he's going to hold on no matter what. And we need leaders who are committed to that type of, that type of vision. Who say no matter what happens, I know this is what I'm supposed to do. It strikes me that one of the crises of the moment in Western culture, not just in the church, is that we have leaders with no conviction. Leaders who will not make the commitment to live no lies, to quote Solzhenitsyn. Leaders who are not willing to put their skin in the game and say what they really think. And we say it all across the Western world in every institution, virtually, in higher education, in, cor in corporate America, in government. Leaders who are not willing to hold on to what they know to be true. Let it not be so among us. Those of you who have that are leaders and you know who you are, you know who you are because you can just feel the fire in you. You must hold on. If God has given you a vision to start a new church, you've got to do it. And it will hurt. It won't be easy. The first two steps might be the type, but there'll be always the time when you find yourself alone in the dark wrestling with God. If God has given you a vision for, for, for some sort of business or ministry or something in your town for your life, you've got to hold on to it no matter what. I want to say to you, Dr. Tennant, don't let go. Don't let go of what God has been doing through you. Because it, 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 what God has in store next is going to require even more fortitude. Because what Dr. Tennant can tell you more than I can is that leadership actually never gets easier. It actually gets harder. It gets harder. The further and faster you go, the greater the resistance against it. So you've got to hold on tight and you can't ever let go. So Jacob says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And he said, and what's your name? Yaakov. He said, your name should no longer be called Yaakov, but Yisrael, the one who wrestles with God or God the wrestler, the wrestling one. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. It's interesting to me that this name becomes the name of God's covenant people. That this name becomes the name that defines God's people. The, the ones who are wrestling and it comes from the moment when Jacob holds on and won't let go, no matter what. Jacob has all kinds of sins for which he needs to repent. And he causes great harm and, and the harm is not done. And yet there's something about Jacob that I think makes him fit to be the patriarch. And it's that tenacity, never letting go of the vision that God has given him. Here's what's sad though. <clears throat> what's sad for me is that God wanted to use Jacob's tenacity all the while for God's purposes. And Jacob kept using it for his own purposes, trying to achieve the very promises that God had already given him. In the womb, in the womb, Rebecca is told 
the elder shall serve the younger. And then they have to have that elaborate ruse in which to somehow gain the blessing that God had already promised him. Before, when Jacob flees his family because of his lies, and he lays out at night with the stone as his pillow, God has already told him, I'm going to be with you. I will not let you go. See, here, here's the point. At this moment in my sermon, a lot of us are making the wrong assumptions. And we're thinking, okay, we got to hold on. God depends on us. The present moment depends on us. The cultural needs are, depend on us. we got to hold on tight. And you would be exactly wrong. God doesn't need us to achieve his purposes. That's not the gospel. How would that possibly be good news? Try harder. Be more tenacious. Get the tattoos on your knuckles and hold fast. How would that possibly be the light shining into the world for anybody? And it's not the gospel, thanks be to God. Listen, does God have things he wants to do through you? Yes, through me, absolutely. Because he's so gracious. He loves to share. He wants to invite us into what he's going to do. See how I'm doing a new thing. Would you like to see how I do it? Would you like to be a part of it? But the, the reason this matters is not because if we don't do it, it won't happen. God's going to achieve what he's going to achieve. The reason it matters is because if we don't hold on, we'll miss those sweet times when you know that God is with you. There's something sweet when you're up all night and your face buried into the carpet. When you're so burdened by the vision, but you don't know how to achieve it, but you know you can't, you can't speak if God's given you a word to say. You know you can't go if God's told you to step. The great, the great tragedy for so many of us is that we let go before we see how good God is and how he wants to bless us. So I think the great challenge for all of us as leaders is to hold on to the vision that he's given us and not let go. Not for God's sake, but because God wants it to be sweet with us. Can I tell you a little example of this? A little example of my own pastoral life? My old church in Dallas, we're urban church, so you're landlocked. And in Dallas, real estate is super expensive. And, and there was a boarding house literally abutting our, our little tiny parking lot. We're an urban church. They'd sold off the property over the years. We had a little tiny parking lot, which doesn't work. And it just seemed clear to me we've got to get the property of these boarding houses. And they were not nice places. They were poorly run. The, the, the men who lived there were fleeced by the landlord who lived far out of town. It's a place of just just despair and violence and kind of spiritual darkness. And we had somebody on our team who wouldn't give up. He drove to the lady's country house about an hour south of Dallas and he hung a letter on her fence. And about two months later, she finally called him and she said, okay, I'll let you have it, but you need to give me $2 million. And we didn't have $2 million. But it was just clear to me, we gotta go for this. I knew we had to do it, but it really made me afraid. I know it sounds so dumb in the light of day saying it here, but when you're the actual leader and it doesn't matter what the idea is and you go first, you feel this tremendous pressure for it to come to fruition because you feel like you look like an idiot if it doesn't work. If this new thing you wanna do with the kids at your little church doesn't work, you feel stupid and you're embarrassed. This is why so many of us shrink back from leadership. So I had to tell the church, we gotta buy this land, it's gonna require $2 million and we need the $2 million in two months. We didn't have it. You can know where the story's gonna go, it'd be a pretty stupid story if it didn't. 
God provided the funds. We were able to buy, buy the land and those dominoes ended up helping us double the amount of acreage we had. It was awesome. But here's what's so cool. We ended up tearing down those old boarding houses. But what nobody could have foreseen was the arrival of the pandemic, which meant we couldn't meet in our church building. So guess what we started doing? Meeting outside, literally, where the footprint of those buildings were before they were torn down. And I gotta tell you, as long as I live, I will never stop being grateful for those sweet times of worship under the sky that God gave us. Praising his name in the middle of a global pandemic. Worshiping out of doors, seeing the children around, people walking, their dogs coming by, the neighborhood being so mad because our music was so loud. I will never ever stop being grateful to God for that. Here's the point. If we let go of the vision that God has for us, we are going to miss out on some beautiful things that God wants to do. We are in need of bold leaders. Yes. And the need's great and the mission field is there. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers seem to be few. But I think my word to you today is hold on, hold on, because God is so good. And when you hold on tight, you get to be closer to him than ever before. And that's my challenge to you today in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.